Nous sommes idéologues faction, les travocales en gaz construit et l'horizon réalisé appartenant. To Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages, the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me over in sunny California, we have David J. Peterson. Hi, I have a balloon with me. I don't know how what to it? how to respond to that, but uh, up in Canada, we it's letting out air. Okay, up in Canada, we've got joey windsor greetings from calgary where kitty litter in the back of a car is for ice not pets ah okay so i i'm i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm guessing it it keeps the ice down without being as corrosive as salt would be right it gives you emergency traction on the roads and and confuses uh, david wonderfully right. yes yes emergency traction it's also a service hmm? it's a service to the neighborhood there you go <laughs> So after you get your car going, you know, you drive off and pretty soon there's a lot of cat poop on the road. <laughs> um, yes, that, that might be unpleasant for some people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So oh, everybody loves it. We have two these two gentlemen on here because um, a topic came up during Luxember, actually. Uh, mostly because of Joey's tweets, because Joey was doing D and D conlangs, um, and and it was I was just thinking about you know uh, there are people who use conlangs in D and D. I'll get a couple of them on. I know that Joey does it and and David does it. Both of you are also are actually DMs, right? And use them in DMing, right? Most frequently, yeah. yeah. I also use them as a player once in a while, but. Yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit about that, too. But um, I mean, it's something that can be used on both sides of it, uh, though there's there's probably the uh, question of like, if you're doing it as a player, is it something that your your DM allows you to like construct for him? But uh, we'll get into that. Uh, first, first, I'm just going to say um uh conlangery is supported entirely by our patrons over at patreon so uh if you would like to help this show get better give me a little bit of money in my pocket then you can go over to patreon.com conlangery and pledge a monthly amount and we have some rewards up there uh, i have some things in the works uh, right now, the only thing, the, the main thing that I'm looking at is um, uh, I'm talking to someone who's a transcriptionist and I'm going to budget a certain amount for her to start transcribing the show. But if I could get more pledges, I could get through the backlog a lot quicker than I would be doing now. So um, look out for that and go go pledge some money to us because, you know, right now I have to have a day job. <laughs> I'm very bad at Patreon pitches. Okay. <laughs> I'm convinced. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's get started. So Conlangs and D&D. &D. So this is, 
this is a really nice place to apply conlangs if you've got a group that is into it, right? Um, because yeah, you're you're. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to be on the it doesn't matter fence. It doesn't matter whether they're into it or not. But we'll get to that in a moment. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, we'll 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 uh, talk about that. But basically, a big part of D and D is sort of the world building, and conlanging is part of world build world building. It's it's a great way to add some verisimilitude into the world. Uh, so, why would you not want to apply your conlanging to to things? I I watch see. I um, have not been able to find the plot time to actually play D&D, so I watch way too many videos and live streams of it. And like the and um, oh, Matt Colville says, take the things you like and put them in your game. Well, our Hell listeners, yeah. you like conlangs, put the conlangs in your game. Let's talk a little bit about how that works. Now, let's actually talk about first, like how much buy-in you uh, need from uh especially if you're dm trying to get this uh to players like how much buy-in do you need from the players and david we'll start with you since you had that thought yeah you don't need any buy-in basically uh the way that the way that i i look at it when it comes to any element of world building aside from it being purely a matter of taste so for example Let's just say that you came up with some sort of a language for one group and your players decided, you know what? I just don't like pre-nasalized stops. Get them out of here. I hate this language because of the pre-nasalized stops. That's one thing. But aside from using a created language at all, um, you don't need buy-in. If it feels like you should, if your players are not working with it, it means that you haven't implemented it well. Mm-hmm. And so that falls on to the DM. In other words, it's, it's, it's not about whether your players are okay with it. It's how they're interacting with it and how that interaction has been scaffolded. Uh, the way I like to, to figure it is basically your players should be able to do whatever their characters are able to do effortlessly, effortlessly. Mm-hmm. However, if it should take their character's effort, then you should make it effortful unless, you know, that part of it isn't fun, in which case it can just be shunted off. But then that, what that means is like when you think about, I guess, from a macro perspective, especially for those who haven't done D&D, but who have conlang, if you think about incorporating a conlang into the game, probably the first thing you think about is like, oh, your character is supposed to speak this language. And so I'm the DM and I don't understand anything you say unless you say it out loud in this conlang, which I provided for you that you must learn. Yeah. But that's um, that's really not the way it should be implemented. <laughs> Joe, you want to kind of take it from there? Well, I'm going to take the cue like uh, George, you already brought out Matt Coville as a DM. And uh, when he was starting the, the Chain of Acheron series, every once in a while he would say something in uh, Gif Yankee, I think it was. And I was like, oh, cool, I actually invented that language. Here, please use my grammar. And he ignored all my tweets. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for Matt Colville, it was just him going, oh, I think Gif would sound like this and ad-libbing off something off the fly. And all the players around the table were right. like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That, that's what they would sound like. 
but yeah, you know, we yeah. Back to the woods. he's 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 not a conlanger, definitely. No, um, <laughs> but I think he does appreciate the people put in. But you know, like exactly what David said, this is this is part of the world, and if you walk by and you hear something, and if you know a conlanger is your DM, and they say you know you walk past an alleyway and you you hear some strange hissing that sounds like language, but you're not sure what it is. And the players go, oh, I I roll a perception check. What does it actually sound like? And you say, oh, it says sounds something like Chloe Tisarulapol. They're going to be like, cool. I can choose to engage with that or I've just gotten a really cool piece of flavor. Um, and in my experience, there is one linguist at my table quite frequently, but all of the other players are like, oh, I need to make a mental note of that and see if I can find someone who can translate it or tell me what the language is. Or even if they're exploring a shipwreck, I'll put the name of the ship in some conscript that I've come up with and they, you know, inevitably write it down and go and try and find it, someone to translate it in case it's meaningful for them. And buy-in is not a problem at all okay. from, from that perspective. So I think what both of you are getting at is sort of you need to build it into the game in a way that's fun. Uh, forcing yeah. players to speak in a conlang in order to play at all is not very fun because it's difficult to go from zero to 100 like that. But having little snippets of it for flavor and then the option of being able to translate something later or maybe having your character learn it or something, that sounds more like it's something that can be fun for some players and if, the, if they choose to engage with it, but they don't have to like have it Work ram down it. their throats. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to to give you an, an example, like uh, all of the, it, well, it's, let's just say if you're going with a typical D&D &D setting, like the ones that come out of the box, all of the various uh, races are supposed to speak different languages. Um, some of them share languages. Some of them have, you know, negligibly different languages. And they even have little write-ups for these things that are very poor in quality. Yes. But um, yeah. The idea, though, is that it works just like when you're reading fiction. So even though if, when you're reading something like a Game of Thrones, it's written in English, the idea is that the characters are all supposed to be speaking a language uh, called the common tongue, which is actually different from English. We're just translating it because uh, it's, it's too much to force your reader to learn an entire language in order to read a book. The same goes for for D and D. So, in other words, all of your characters will end up speaking a language that probably will be called the common tongue that most of the NPCs around you also speak. Mm -hmm. So, you don't need a conlang for that. But there might also be other languages that are um, that are different from the one that everybody speaks. So, like in the the first group that we played that I played with, there was you know. There was a, uh, I think there was one dwarf, uh, one human, one gnome, one elf, and then one turtle person. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, it happened that the elves were going to be doing things in this game. And so that elf character could understand when people were saying uh, things in elvish and could understand when it was written in elvish. And so if he decided that he wanted to share everything with the group, 
um, then you just kind of bypassed the conling and did everything in English because he just got the information and relayed it, let's say, almost immediately. However, since he is technically the only person that understands that language, it's his choice. He, he might decide, you know what, I feel like I don't want to translate everything that I, that's being said right now for the group, in which case you can just say it directly to them. I usually do it via text message. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, the group is there. And just like, let's say you were with a group of four friends in Spain and you were the only one that spoke Spanish, they could also take a shot at trying to understand what was said if they wanted to. You know, uh, they might not have any cognates in common. But that doesn't mean they can't try to give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. Body language and and the same thing works, especially with uh, written language. So like, you know, if there's, if there's something that could be written in a conling that nobody understands, uh, I, would, I would write it all out mm-hmm. and give it to them with the understanding that, you know, none of them speak it. But if they wanted to try to puzzle it out, they could, if they thought that was fun. Uh, if they didn't, they could just hang on to it and see if they could find somebody to translate it. But, you know, you give them the chance, uh, the same opportunity that, that you would have being in a country where you can't read the script and then understand the language. You know, you, if you might not be able to even sound anything out, but you might recognize, wait a minute, I've seen like, you know, three different police stations and they all had this sequence of glyphs. So that probably has something to do with police. Yeah. I'm going to guess. You know what I mean? I like using the written conlangs a lot in my game, and one of the things, uh, and I think this is a pet peeve of yours, George, is, you know, Draconic is a language, and every dragon and every cosmology speaks Draconic. Um, mm-hmm. I've used, and Draconic is not one of my languages, it's one of the D&D canon languages that has a few words and everything. But I've used that, and I said, "Oh, you're a you're a good person. You speak this dialect that has to do with the metallic dragons, but this seems a little odd. Maybe this is chromatic dragon or something. Just making two dialects." And I gave them an intelligence check to try and figure it out. And I set different difficulty classes, and the the player actually ended up rolling really well. So she got that um, this sentence in draconic meant go to the mountain cave and fetch my fire sword. But what she didn't realize is there's three different possessives in Draconic. One is for inanimate objects, one is for friends and relatives, and one is for all other nouns. And the my in this example happened to be relative. So it was actually his relative, a red dragon, who happened to be named fire sword. Weren't they surprised when they showed up in the cave and there was a red dragon there? Oh, okay. You guys both bring up also other points that I kind of want to point it, go into. One thing, uh, you guys both sort of mentioned like doing skill checks in order to figure out something that you don't know. And one of the things that I feel is kind of limiting about D&D that was done probably just understandably to make things simpler, but like me as a language nerd doesn't like totally is like there's no gradation to your understanding of language it's just either you speak this language or you don't and if you unless you're like a barbarian or have certain backgrounds or something 
if you speak it, you can read it. So it's kind of this weird place. And I like, how do you guys handle it? Is it just like different kinds of skill checks, like perception, intuition, whatever, or insight, not intuition? I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's relegated uh, solely to D and I think that's uh, a part of many different types of fiction, but also I think it's what a lot of people understand the world to be. For many people, either you speak a language or you don't. They're like, you know, can you speak this language? And if you start to answer like, well, I'm pretty good with blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, so you don't. I was like, well, that's, that's not reality. But that is reality for a lot of people in terms of how they believe language is supposed to work, even though that it probably isn't true of their own competence of foreign languages. Uh, for example, like anybody who says, you know, who's taken like a year of Spanish and says that they don't speak Spanish, they didn't pay much attention in high school. They're going to do better understanding something in Spanish than they will something in Mandarin or, or something in Vietnamese, you know. But that's not something that I think activates for a lot of people. It's not something they realize. And so it's no wonder that when you build something up like D&D and you incorporate language into it, then in the language guides, it's going to be like, here are your races. These races will speak these languages. If you want to speak extra of them, you know, you can add this as a skill or a feature and you speak more of these languages and you'll speak all of these languages fluently and all the other languages you will speak zero of. And automatically be able to read and write too. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, that was, yes. And that was that's the other thing you brought up. Yeah. Most of these people should probably not be able to read and write even if they speak the language. Yeah. That was something back in second edition. Back in second edition D&D, you needed to take a skill in reading, writing competence. And then when third edition came out, they just said, if you speak the language, you also write it. And we're going to assume everyone's literate except for, as George said, barbarians who start the game with illiteracy as a, as a feature of their class. Yeah. But yeah. Aww. That's been lost, unfortunately from the core rule books. I, I, I feel like that that's um, a thing. Like I, I feel like if I were going to run things, one thing that I would make would be like a slightly different language system that would at least have like two levels. Like you would have some languages you are proficient in and some that you are acquainted with. And you have to like make a skill mm. check or have certain penalties when you're trying to use them. But that 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 is one thing that you would have to have players buy into and like understand that this is a thing. I I do that thing. You so do like it, it says in the the core books that um, I think goblins use the dwarven script. So if I have a character <laughs> that speaks, reads, and writes dwarven, I'll at least give them a shot at muddling through some of the goblin and going, okay, this this word sounds familiar and you think that that might be North. You don't know what the sentence means, but you're pretty sure you got North out of it or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. It also gives you the opportunity to, uh, to mess with false oh, cognates. Yeah. So, you know, you, you essentially give somebody, I would say a wisdom check where if you pass the wisdom check, it makes you reflect and think, wait, just because that word sounds very similar to a word I know, it doesn't mean it means the same yeah. thing. Whereas if you fail, you'd be like, yep, <laughs> that's the word for safety. Let's yep. go. Yeah. <laughs> We're fine. I think that Shadowrun had um, 
has like four levels for each language. But I think that's that's too much granularity. It's like a little bit complicated. Um, It is interesting, though. I want to look this up. I did like that um, fifth edition. I I know that third edition, which is the one that I have played before, had it so like your intelligence modifier determined how many languages you spoke. And they got rid of that, I think, in fifth edition and moved it to backgrounds, which makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There are very, very smart people who only speak one language. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they are assuming a bit of a a melting pot. um, And if you are going to assume that every player character can automatically read and write every language they speak, then they're probably noble of some descent and they've probably been required to learn multiple languages. But I don't. I'm not sure that much thought actually went into it. I think it was just like the standard sort of American tendency of thinking that if you speak more than one language that makes you smart, that is because you're smarter and you studied them in school, which is not how most people become multilingual (laughs) in the world. But uh, anyway, going on from world building, because one of the interesting things about it and it it's true in most role playing systems but you guys have both run D&D and I'm familiar with D&D so um we can talk about it from there is there's a lot of the world building that's kind of done for you and then you have to sort of see about what you're going to do so the most obvious one for that and the one that, like, if I'm building a D&D world, I would probably want to change is the whole thing of one language per race. The exotic languages, like, Draconic is fine. Maybe I can say that the Draconic that wizards and sorcerers automatically get is, like, ancient Draconic to be, like, this is the magical language of the oldest dragons. But, like, that's cool. But, like... Why is it like dwarves speak dwarvish and elves speak elvish and humans speak common, which like automatically we're like, wait a minute. So humans are in charge of everything. Uh, It's sort of a like, Joey, you do a lot of like conlanging actually for your world. Do you mess with those relationships much or... Not as much as I want to. And I think that's a matter of time. so, for example, I was talking about the, the GIF language earlier. Um, I have a proto-GIF language and two sister, well, two daughters of proto-GIF. Um, and that reflects the fact that there was a branch in the, the GIF, the GIF Yankee and the GIF Sarai. And so I think mm-hmm. one of them has um, voiced stops and the other one has um, like a, a voice voiceless distinction. The other one has... Um, aspirated, unaspirated distinction, and one of them has velars, the other one has uvulars, and a few other little changes like that, and plus some lexical items do fun things. So I like messing with that dialectally, or if I have a player who speaks elven and they go into the Underdark, I'm like, well, drow is definitely not the same as elven. So you're going to get a couple of, like David was saying, false friends with the cognates 
and you can probably figure out a system of communication, very rudimentary, but it's, it's very much a different language. Or if you end up on the other side of the continent, common isn't so common because it's, I think of it as common to the local variety. And if you are not from that local place, you don't speak that common language. That, that's my stance on it, at least. Mm. Dwarvish means common in Dwarvish. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I would say that the reason that you probably have one uh, one race for one language in all of the D and D settings is because they're all rather self-contained, and that um, it's always it's not only the case that it's the say the elves that speak Elvish. It's also the case that the elves are all in one area. It's like ninety nine point nine percent of elves in the world reside in Elfland. And they speak Elvish. Yeah. And they talk to each other only pretty much all the time, except for the 0.1% that serve as the NPCs that you need to interact with that are miraculously wherever they need to be. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not sure which one is more unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but like in my, in my case, the way I looked at it was I, I kind of ignored whatever the races were. And I just said, let's just stick with regions. Hmm. And so it's like, all right, in this region, this is the language that's going to be spoken. If most of the people that are there are dwarves, then that's fine. But the thing is, if you go to some other region and there happen to be dwarves there, if they are long removed from the first region, they might not even speak dwarvish anymore if they came from there. They're going to speak whatever the local variety is. And so in that way, I tried to I tried to make it stick so that it was languages per region. Yeah. But uh, of course, the big um, the big elephant in the room that that we're not mentioning here is in addition to the incredible investment of time required to create a campaign and maintain it and keep it running. I mean, there's also the investment of time that comes with creating languages, which is something conlangers are well familiar with. Mm -hmm. This is why when I um, when I went to you know, do my DM campaign, I didn't create new languages. I was just for the languages that I needed. I took languages that I already created that I thought worked well enough. Specifically, mm -hmm. I also chose languages that that I thought I might be using later on. And so that if I was fleshing them out, I would be killing two birds with one stone. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, guilty. Before I got really, really into conlanging, I have slipped Klingon into a few of my D&D games. <laughs> just because I some otherworldly flavor. Like, you know, this is very obviously a different language, so... <laughs> but I try not to do that too <laughs> Good for orcs yeah. or dwarves or something. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, for, a, like, if you were seriously conlanging for, like, a, you know, like the stuff that you do, David, for movies and stuff, or for, like, a book project or something, you wouldn't want to do something like that. But for a and d game where it's all on fun and nobody really is cares that much, that makes sense to me that you can use something that's pre-existing that maybe it wasn't made for this setting, but it gives you the idea that these people are speaking another language that has meaning to it. I mean, Empire of the Petal Throne is the best way to go about it. It's just, yeah. I mean, in some ways it's a lifelong project. And it also can be, it can be, uh, I guess, uh, disillusioning to uh, put a lot of work into something like this. 
and then have the campaign filter out after three or four meetings, yeah. which, you know, happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the other thing is like, how much time investment do you want to put into this particular campaign if it ends up not working out well? Uh, which, I mean, maybe you can use the same world for another campaign in the future or something like that. But it's it's yeah. like up to each person how much time and effort you want to do in addition to DMing. If you're because if you're doing the world building, you're probably going to be the DM. Well, George, hmm? uh, just, you know, from Lex Ember this year, you're familiar with my Tejosian Conlang. I started that, I think, probably two years ago. I've yeah. got the characters' names who are going to play in this game. Like the, I've already know that the linguist character is going to be Doctor Thaddeus Charles Edderington because my player made that character name. And I've been working on Tehosian now for two years. I've been working on the game for two years. We still haven't even played it, but I don't care because <laughs> I'm also a conlanger, so I have fun just in the process of creating this language. It lets me world build. I. I think I'd be sad if I never got to use it or never got to play the campaign at four, but I'm still having fun just conlanging anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Let's it's just really hard managing adult schedules. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, can can we talk a little bit about Tehosian? Because um what you did for Lexember, like reading through the stuff about Tehosian, there's all these interesting things that I think we're you were building it into your world and also building it for the game in an interesting way because your source for all of the like uh, all of the notes on each word that you're giving like the primary source that goes back to is a guy called Kess the Provider who wanted to uh, conquer the the Tequosians right. And he had a, a guy he was he was um, working with Fmonich. named Fmonich, right? Yeah. What is Fmonich? Fmonich. Okay. And um, there, you you sort of made a little bit of mystery and a little bit of a puzzle in it. In that, like, he does is not sensitive to all the distinctions in it. And so his material is very unreliable, uh, yeah. in addition to just being an outsider, right? So, like, can you talk a little bit about, like, what your reasoning was there and, like, how did, how did you build that out? So, uh, as a dungeon master, I'm setting this game, you know, kind of Indiana Jones style. My characters will have access to firearms, which have been built into recent D&D settings like Waterdeep and things like that. So, they're, they're going to be university professors, and thanks to the dissertation by Dr. Uh, Charles Thaddeus Edderington, he has figured out that uh, Tehosian was actually a pitch accent language and Kest the Provider, uh, a warlord that existed some 3,000 years prior and uh, completely devastated the Tehosian culture, wasn't sensitive to pitch accent distinctions in the language. So he just thought there were homophones all over the place or homonyms all over the place um, when it wasn't true. Mm. Uh, he also wasn't sent, uh, sensitive to the distinction between a uh, obstruent coda and then a glide onset versus just a 
rounded obstruent, which is a phoneme in the language, which also puts in a few more problems. So the background of the game is uh, after this professor figures out it's a pitch accent language, all of these previous archaeological expeditions that have gone to the mouth of the river looking for the Tehuasian culture has failed. And he goes, well, this doesn't have to mean the mouth of the river. This is also a compound form that means waterfall. We go to the other end of the river, there's a waterfall, and nobody's investigated that area yet. So the party assembles and they go away with this knowledge. Um, I will make available my Tejosian grammar for anyone who's actually interested, but when they come up with something, I'm going to say, oh, an expert, you're reminded of an excerpt from Kest's journal where he calls this either this or this, and you can translate it one of these two ways. And then it's up to the player characters to decide, well, we really think this is probably the translation. Let's assume that's correct and act accordingly, which might mean uh, at one point they have to find either the heart of the king or the heart of the mountain, which would be a, a mine shaft, king and mountain being one of these minimal pairs. So they can go down this ancient mine shaft or they can go looking for wherever the king happens to be buried as an example. So the, the players don't have to do a lot of conlang interpretation if they don't want to. They're just going to be constantly presented with, this could mean this, or it could mean this. Take your best guess, and let's see how it plays out. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's really cool. I like that. I, I hope it pans out. I'm looking forward to playing it one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely like that approach. I, I, th I think that shows how rewarding it can be if you do try to do this. But at the same time, it's a lot of work to put into something that's... <laughs> so, David, you talked about you just break it out into regions and, and talk about it in regional ways. And then, Joey, you were talking about like the common here is not the common there, which I yeah. think is more like the way I would want to run it would be... That's kind of two ways of saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it is really. Um, because if D&D campaigns usually will start in a small, like constrained area, right? Especially mm -hmm. if you're like taking seriously that mm -hmm. like, this is pseudo medieval setting, people can't really move that far around e easily until they start getting like magic and stuff, right? So I can see that happening and like I could... I could zoom in on this one area that's going to be the starting area and say, okay, what is the lingua franca here? What are the minority languages here? What other like races live here? Like, do they have different languages? And that could make sense. I, but, you know, I, I would not want to put it as strictly one language per race. I'd probably want to have at least humans would have like several different language families. And then like, maybe cause, cause we want to focus, maybe we want to focus more on humans. We can have some of the other races be like more, slightly more monolithic, but still like maybe, maybe the elves have two languages. Maybe the dwarves and the gnomes speak the same language, just depending on what the, what the historical relationships between peoples are. Right. Yeah, in the case of my world version, it started off uh, smaller than, you know, I was looking at kind of a small area. 
uh, for that I was working with and which was going to expand. Uh, it really made sense, sense to focus on region because basically you had kind of like a big elf kingdom that was self-contained and not widely spread. And then to the east of that was a dwarven kingdom where up north that was where they started and then they kind of moved down south. And so there's been a separation between the two areas. It's the type of thing where you add a few centuries, they probably won't be speaking the same language. Uh, but in this case, it was more recent. And then after that, there's a human kingdom. And this is all in one landmass where all of these people know about each other and are, are kind of talking to one another a little bit. Uh, but then I, I, I needed to introduce a new set of humans that came from a distant, a distant place kind of like a, an island mass that was far off to the east. And so, I mean, naturally, they spoke their own language. And the thing that precipitated this was not the fact, I mean, what race they were didn't matter. Uh, it was the fact that they were from an entirely different area that didn't necessarily, were their, I guess their place of origin wasn't the same as the humans that started in this main continent area. And so there it was just, I don't know, the locale was, was just much more important. Um, naturally, most of the people they encountered in this main city did speak the language there, but they spoke it as a second language, mm. uh, which, you know, brought with it everything that, you know, that entails. And, but it also allowed me to use that language as a second language for various purposes. In this case, it was tied to one of the major religions that was in the, uh, in the city or in, in this kingdom at the time. Right. Okay. One of that the, works. So I was just say one of the things we also haven't touched on is when we're talking about races like elves, or in my case, like tieflings and other infernal beings, lifespan is going to play a major role. So for humans, we're going to change our language every generation or so. So every 25 to 50 years and after centuries, sure, you're not speaking the same language. You're talking about the infernal language where these demons have existed for eons. That language doesn't change a lot. It might get new borrowings, but chances are ancient infernal is going to be pretty close to modern infernal or contemporary infernal. Or like not even going into exotic languages, but elves in D&D, I think, live like 700 years. Yeah, five to 700. Yeah. And so in, in 700 years, Great, great, great grandpa is still alive for the elves, but for humans, like that's that, that's enough time for one language to be completely mutually unintelligible from from its ancestor. So yeah, you end up with weird dynamics. If an elf speaks the common tongue from five hundred years ago, all of a sudden another human shows up, and it's this like weird archaic old English or something. Yeah. <laughs> Although there's there's there is sort of a question of like how are you going to mix up all the the races together like if you ended up like with an elven and human kingdom right where there's let's say like the elves are the nobility mostly and then the, you have humans and there's intermarriage so there's lots of half elves you've got people of wildly different longevities what effect is that going to have on language change, are there going to be diverging dialects that one is super conservative and one is 
still innovative or are they going to like balance out somehow? <laughs> I mean, it's a good theoretical question. I would, I would suggest you almost ended up with like class or register differences. Yeah, I think you'd have you, to. You get into the, the sociolinguistics there a little bit. Yeah. How much more, how much longer do elves live than humans usually? To the power of 10 typically. Oh my God. So like a, I mean, so, the books say humans can live into their 70s or 80s, but if you're thinking medieval Europe, the average lifespan was like, you were lucky to reach 35 years old as a human, as a, you know, non-noble. And elves, elves are 500 to 700. Oh boy. So, yeah, so it's like, you're definitely going to have more than one spouse, unless you're going to be living a long, lonely time if there's intermarriage. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, that was wow. That was uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Like he, uh, Tolkien had to give Aragorn long life from being one of the Dunedain Rangers just so he could uh, be with Arwen. I think. Yeah. I, well, that was um, wow. that was that was sort of a uh, yeah. That's that's interesting. Well, Ar Arwen also chose to become mortal too, so right. that she right. would eventually die. Although, like the, I, I I'm I'm not familiar enough with Tolkien to know the exact mechanics of that. If if she's, does she go to the same place that humans go when they die, or does she fade like other elves <laughs> do? I'm not sure. But anyway, that's that's Tolkien. We're talking D and D. They're they're tangentially related. <laughs> but I mean. I, any any role playing system, any any role playing setting, of course, you could have an element of language because, like, you have there are sci fi settings where you're going off to different planets. Well, yep. you go to the next planet; it's almost certainly going to be a different language people speak there. <laughs> so when D and D comes out with the Spelljammer campaign setting again, they need <laughs> to hire conliners. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, we I think we've had this conversation privately, but it makes sense to have it on this podcast. It makes zero sense that there isn't at least one full-time conlanger employed by Wizards of the Coast. I mean, my CV is on the website. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean like beyond that, it's just it's it's almost insulting that they have anything about their uh, anything about language in there at all, and they don't hire somebody to do it. Like it, it's such a no brainer. Yep. Because it's such a, a. I mean, first of all, it's it's such a cool thing um, that a lot of people would be really interested in. But it's also something that not every DM has the aptitude uh, for, and or the interest in actually building it up. And second, even if they want to, it takes a lot of time. It would be so nice if there were just some off-the-shelf languages for for D and D uh, that you know DMs could do the same thing they they do with everything else in there. Either take it off the shelf because they like it or don't want to bother, or if they want to do something different, they can do something different. Yeah. Um, and it's just uh, it's absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, with how many how many races and languages everything is claimed to have. I mean, that's an endless number of books that could be published, uh, let alone what you might do if you, if you wanted to get uh, different dialects 
from the same proto language. Um, or I'm sorry, you know, related languages from the same proto language. There's so much. There's yeah. so much there. You could hire one person and have it come out, you know, slowly over a long period of time, or hire a bunch of different people and you know, uh, come at, come out with a bang and publish like ten books at once. Anyway, yeah. yep, so, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one project I've thought about, you know, we could get together and and make these homebrew and sell them as books too. But uh, who has the time? Like one project, <laughs> I don't know. I mean. <laughs> One project I was well, thinking. Let's just say that you could. Yeah. You could. Uh, but you'd have to have it, you'd have to have everything in there that was special or unique to D&D be separate so that you didn't, you know, step on somebody's IP and get sued. The good thing about D&D is they have a Creative Commons license that, that puts almost everything in their content as just public domain, you can use it. They just put a couple restrictions mm. on where you can publish it. Um, and then there's a few primitive things, like you're not allowed to do anything with the illithids because that's actually property of George R. R. Martin that D&D has licensed, uh, or a few huh. things like that. But by and large, it's, uh, it's fair game. Wait a minute, George R. R. Martin did the illithids? <laughs> he also did the gift. Okay, um, but they were they were they were a very different non sentient race, and I think it was eighty seven or eighty eight. He published a book with them in it. Oh, okay, yeah, and it might have just been a short story or something. But oh, okay. One project I've thought of making, which you know I have lot many more pro creative projects in my head than I have time to do, but like. Going back to like the like even the game mechanics do some world building for you, right? So in D and D, magic is packeted in the individual spells. A lot of those spells have verbal components. You also have mm. in the class descriptions certain classes, certain spellcasting classes get certain languages. So it's sort of it doesn't have to be that way, but it's sort of implied that spells have incantations in certain languages so i i was thinking about someday like doing the exotic languages doing like draconic and infernal and celestial and going through the spell list uh of what's in the D, D srd and just like making incantations for each of them for like Arcane would be arcane spells would be and draconic and divine spells would be and celestial infernal whichever you want to choose stuff like that. But anyway, that's a thing that somebody could do. This is why I took Latin in undergrad because <laughs> I wanted my wizards to be able to speak Latin while they were casting spells, and that quickly quickly faded. But yeah, I mean, I like it's, what. So one of the things I do is you know. If a bard casts silence, wizards all of a sudden are almost done. Like they, if they have a verbal component to their spell and they're under a silence thing, they're done. If they happen to be underwater, you try speaking underwater. So unless they can cast the spell speaking aquan, they're screwed. I love that. Yeah. And this brings us back to our main point here, which is that the bard is the best and most overpowered class in all of D and D. There is no possible. There is no possible way that you can beat a bard. 
just none. They're too powerful. Here's a question to you guys, because it's like one of the idle thoughts that comes to me. I'm talking about spellcasters in silence. What would you do if you had a character who wanted to be a deaf spellcaster and tried to have you like let him do his verbal components with a sign language so that like oh it's like he has a a a disability because like he's gonna like he he can't do any he can't do any perception check that requires hearing right but an advantage in that he's immune to silence <laughs> well I mean, you know, anything that's in D and D, that's just the way it starts, right? Yeah, right. I mean, I don't think any, I don't think anybody's ever run a campaign where they do everything strictly by the book. So if somebody wants to do that, I mean, just it's a simple swap. I think whatever is verbal is now done with sign, and so if their hands are tied, then they can't spell cast. Right. Same thing, as if you know, same thing as if they were silenced or something. The only yeah. place where things would get tricky is. Um, how well articulated these signs need to be in order to actually effectively uh, produce the spell. Because, right. of course, a lot of the times in D&D, characters are holding stuff in their hands. Right. And the question is, if it's if the hand uh, shape is super important, then the, the spell might not come off as well. But, of course, deaf signers mm -hmm. are holding stuff all the time. And in that case, they tend to get by. You know, they're holding a cup. They just use one finger and people, for the most part, get the idea. But who knows if I guess I, it's kind of a weird thing to think of. But it's like if uh, somebody who's fluent in ASL watches somebody else in ASL who is holding something in their hands and signing, they can fill in the blanks. Whatever entity needs to understand, right, the sign in order for the spell to come off correctly. Do they have the same plasticity that human beings have when it comes to understanding human yeah. language? I have no idea. I, I, I would need more time to think on that one, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just a hypothetical, to, honestly. For the, yeah. I, I don't know if people have tried to do this. If you have tried to do this, let me know. Like in the PHB, there, there are rules like um, a bird that, has, that is deaf and has to perform the fascinate or something has a 20% failure chance if they're deaf or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it is, but there, there are actually rules in the player's handbook about this. Oh, okay. Uh, although not specifically for substituting in some sort of gestural, like ASL uh, sign language in there. I don't think that exists yet, but I, I love where David's idea is going with that one. Yeah. I think it would be, it, you'd have to, be, have someone who seriously wants to role play the character this way and not be mm. necessarily trying to do it just to be a munchkin somehow. <laughs> but yeah. 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 So here's the, I, I do presentations at our local version of Comic-Con, which is the Calgary um, Comic and Entertainment Expo on making conlangs and putting conlangs into games and things like that. And inevitably the one question that always comes up is what about the first level spell comprehend languages? And, right. you know, spells break everything. 
But I love it when my players go, okay, our dungeon master is a linguist and a conlanger. Inevitably, this is going to come up. I'm going to prepare this spell. And they find something carved into a rock and they go, oh, I, I don't recognize this language that is made with claws, but I'm going to cast comprehend language. And I said, oh, okay. Well, it, you touch the surface and you get, it means place where we move discreetly. Because comprehend language allows you to get the literal meaning of something. And the literal meaning of rulapol in my Lizardine language is place where we move discreetly. And all of my characters go, oh shit, we're in a bad place, we need to hide. But that's the Lizardine word for borderland. <laughs> so just because they get the literal meaning as it would be translated into their version of common doesn't mean they actually understand what's going on. So I love screwing with players that try to get around my my language things with magic. That's that's an excellent <laughs> excellent point. And and that's as as rules as written, as people yep. like to say, is it, <laughs> you get the literal meaning of it and sometimes the literal meaning of it doesn't tell you anything about what it means. I, uh, I'll point out, like, comprehend languages is one thing. At least that's sort of a resource that people spend. But, like, if you got a warlock, some of the, like, warlocks can take a thing where they just can read any language anyway all the yep. time. So, but yeah. It's there's the same thing, I think. Like, to get the literal meaning. Yeah. So, there's a lot of uh, things like that 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 you end up running into. Yeah, I think that's a great, great way to handle it because you can, you can sort of make it so that someone who actually, actually understands the language and learned it the right way, either uh, as a native language or studying it as a second language, they are involved in the culture enough that they may get some of that re those references, or that they might just automatically understand in context. Oh, that means that this is the borderlands, right? Whereas yeah. somebody who magically understands the language will understand the language with no cultural context to it. So they they'll tell you they'll tell you what these words mean, but they're not sure what all that means in that. In in that particular, uh, you know, in this particular place and time. <laughs> the uh, the other caveat I put on that is if you read the spell description, um, if it's written language, you actually have to be touching the surface. They'll say, hey, right. put the surface somewhere that's not easy to touch. And if you want your wizard up there, they have to risk a hundred foot fall or you know, something like that. And, the wizard's not going to survive that if they're first level, so maybe the juice isn't worth the squeeze. Yeah, mm. or maybe the surface is a trap too. Yep, I do that. You know, all of a sudden there's an exploding rune in there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, David. What's what's your thoughts on uh, magic getting around these these language devices? I. Uh... <laughs> You know, the funny thing is, that has never come up. <laughs> they, I mean, they've had that ability, and they've had times where it might have benefited them to use it. Never once have they thought of it. it never once. listen to this episode of, of Con Langry and how it's going to start happening to you. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, uh, I mean, this, this has nothing to do with Con Langry, but my experience as a DM is like I prepare 
for all of these possible eventualities of them doing this, 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 and this. And then they spend, they spend two and a half hours arguing with an NPC over which one of these pastries is the best. (laughs) Yeah. Players, players go left when the options were up, down or right. (laughs) I've, I've actually run a game and I, the players just, I don't know why, but they said, Hey guys, let's head north. And I was like, what? No, you, you, well, I gave you a map with an X on it, guys. What? No. And they actually did the game completely backwards. It was a complete fluke that they ended up beating this really, really high challenge rating right off the bat, which gave them just enough power to literally do the game backwards. So when they got to the very final thing, combat lasted, I don't know, three rounds, four rounds. I'm like, that was so easy. Why was that so easy, Joey? You guys literally did the entire game backwards. Those were the challenge rating twos. And when you were level two, you took out the thing that was level seven. <laughs> they do it. Yeah. Players do it. Well, I mean, that's why, you know, when you, when they go for a left, left turn, you just suddenly behind the scenes, move your plot hooks around. Although it's harder when you put a giant X on your map. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They said they forgot about having the map when it was a physical prop that was actually in front of them with an X on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that happens. <laughs> yeah. That's but I mean that that would be a thing even with, you know, you you're doing kind of like in world world building stuff. Like, what happens if you do all the world building for a particular area that you expect your players are going to go to, and then suddenly, like, they go in some direction where you don't know anything about it, you haven't figured out what is even there? What do you what do you guys do in that situation? Uh, brother, so I mean, that basically happened because uh, I had I had set things up. Uh, so that my players would go south. So I don't know if you remember when I explained this, there was this big dwarven kingdom in the north, and then there were these, there was kind of a separate one in the south. I had set things up for them to go to that dwarven kingdom in the south. Uh, both my wife and I had worked on this, by the way. She does a lot of my planning. So she set up the whole city and everything. I created, um, I created banners for 24 different uh, dwarven guilds. I had a whole set things going there and then um you know when they i mean it's just through the natural course of events they learned somewhat the lay of the land and where they could go um and they learned that there was this big city to the east which was where i planned that they would go after the dwarven kingdom and they were like let's go there i'm like oh okay (laughs) so this is happening and so it's like okay just throw them as they as they head there and i can't dissuade them you know i just throw them enough random encounters to get to the end of the night so that then i can stop everything i'm doing and go plan all of this stuff which wasn't ready yet ah my my you're gonna build a city in a week or how long how long how often do you game oh well we're all adults so every seven to eight weeks oh my god i'm so lucky (laughs) you got a month or two to make a city I mean, I usually play at least twice a week, so 
Wow. Oh, nice. I, I'm in yeah, enough they... games with enough different groups. Um, so there's one core group of us that play almost every Saturday, and we'll play all day every Saturday. So if we get to a point like that, we just go, okay, cool. That's all I have planned. Uh, can you start running your game for the next three hours? Because I'm out. Well, that's cool. Um, or That's actually a really neat idea. Um, yeah, we have a lot wow. of simultaneous games going so we've my girlfriend picked up one of the prefab adventures and she's running that basically to give me a break from dming uh one of the other guys is running a game when he's not too busy with school uh and finishing up his education degree and then i would like to think i'm pretty good at just going on the fly whether it's random encounters or here's one thing if you describe something in enough detail, your players will spend two hours puzzling over what it does before they even touch it. So if you describe an intricate glyph and picture system on a doorknob, they won't even look for traps. They will sit there trying to solve a puzzle when it's an unlocked door. (laughs) If you need to kill time, just just describe something in in intricate detail. That's good. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I have needed to pause the game for 45 minutes because I had to run out and pick something up completely unrelated to D&D. So I literally made this this box. And when they got to the temple, I said, you know, there's a Warhammer stuck into the side of the mountain and this box is hanging off of it. And I had three switches on it. And one side was labeled in Klingon and one side was labeled in Lizardine and one side was labeled in Gif and one side was labeled in probably Dothraki, actually. <laughs> and I said, you have everything you need to get into this box. And I left. And it was a physical prop. I made it out of paper and whatnot. And I came back 45 minutes later, and they said, well, we tried this, and like the box didn't open or anything. I'm like, you have everything you need to get into it. And finally, one of them looked at me and said, the Warhammer, right? I'm like, yeah, just break the fucking thing open. <laughs> <laughs> but it was enough of a puzzle that it stalled them while I had to leave. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done. Yeah, uh, it's, I, I, that, that's that's great though that you can put a challenge there that they'll just talk about on their own for a long time and give you some breathing room. That's something you can do with conlangs, though, right? You can you can give them like the text that's on the door, and maybe it's just totally just flavor, not really. Probably you want to make it somewhat relevant so that it's somewhat useful information, but not just like not ne- like not necessary for them to advance. And then people puzzle yeah. over it, try to figure out what's going on. Right. My lizardine language, I, I designed it around a coded orthography and I actually made it's a it's about an 18 inch wooden shield with. Uh, four rotating platforms on it so you can reorganize the orthography to code things. And there's probably about 40 sets of words that if you have the wrong setting on the code wheel, what should be push will come out as pull or jump will come out as descend or something like that. And my players absolutely loved that, probably because it had a physical prop, but two of them were trying to puzzle out the this wheel, and another two of them were sitting with a copy of the grammar that they found on you know someone's backpack or something like that. And but oh, if this means this, and this is what I see in the wall, this must mean we need to go right to avoid the traps. 
And if they had the settings <laughs> wrong on the code wheel, they'd go the wrong way and get hit with traps. But my players seem to love that because it, they didn't have to be linguists to figure it out. But there was, this is how you decipher, and this is where you look to see what you have found means. And they loved it. Well, that. Yeah, that's true. And also, I mean, just the way that people try to encode things in the real world. I mean, certainly people that share a language will try to hide something from another one. And so you could always just bust out a cipher mm -hmm. just because that's what the character wanted to do. Um, right. And then you could you could bring in your uh, you can bring in writing systems for that as well. And and just say like you know you see this this writing system here it's like uh, do any of us know this language no no you don't it's like because it turns out it's not a language at all it's <laughs> it's just a cipher it's just a series of symbols and comprehend languages doesn't work on that yeah and you're like why it must it must be some magic spell and you're like uh, somebody's enchanted this with something it's like yeah maybe that's the reason <laughs> or or this uh, it's using the script that somebody knows but in a way like, yeah it's, you're it's right it's just a cipher of of like common or whatever it's not actually that yeah. language so they look at it and they're like i have no idea what what this means it's just gibberish and then yeah. and then people have to figure it out Especially if you have like a, a campaigns like like Joey's, uh, they're so used to having the language around them. Yeah, that would be an amazing misdirect. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really lucky. My my players around my table indulge my linguist ways, and they accept it as you know this. Uh, this is something that would happen in a real world, and it's one of Joey's interests, so he's obviously going to incorporate it at some point. Uh, hopefully he's not going to be a complete dick about it and make it impossible, but my, my players in, indulge my linguistic tendencies. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think it's about time that we wrapped up the, the show. So... Um, do you guys have any final thoughts, just any like takeaways that people should should have from here, from from this episode about like if you're going to use your con legs, not just in D&D, &D, but in, in role playing in general, like what do you what is your advice to people? You can only do better than what's already there for you. So if you use it at all, if you embellish it at all, if you even just do fun voices with your characters and assume maybe different regional varieties or racial varieties, however you want to go, have different accents, you're already improving the role play experience for everyone at the table from what's just on the page in the rule books. I'll, I'll also throw this in. Even if you didn't want to go so far as, as making languages or using your own languages, even, even building in a naming language for the various races of your game will, I think, add a nice level to it. Yeah. First, when players hear a name, they'll be able to recognize it and start to say, oh, that's probably that name. But you can also even have fun with it. And just uh, and just remember that, all right, these people aren't supposed to speak this language. What would happen in the real world? So like, you know, what was uh, what was that name? Um, it's like, OK, well, there's uh, 
the the only name I can think of right now in Arabic, uh, you could probably get by pretty easily. But the last name I was thinking of was Qadri. Qadri. I'm sorry, that should be a trill, shouldn't it? Qadri. Yeah. So it's got a Q in the beginning. And so like as a DM, like you could just say, what's, what's your name? My name is Qadri. And then they try to repeat it and they try to repeat it as best they can because they don't speak the language, right? So they're, they're still just giving it their best shot. So I did that with, uh, <laughs> uh, this, this, uh, the, my dwarves had this language. In fact, they spoke the language that the orcs did in Bright. Um, but there was a character, and so they were engaging with this character who was going through, she was a leader of the caravan. So they say, what's your name? Character says, Khodza. Um, <laughs> I said, what? Khodza. And like, did you slow down? It's just Chodza. <laughs> so they're sitting here trying to repeat it because they needed to later on. They needed to tell the people. They needed to tell somebody else who it was, and they had to try to repeat it. But the thing was, that was a real situation, right? Yeah. Because they didn't speak that language, so no, you don't get to write it down. You just got to do your best to sound it out and hope you can get somebody else to understand it. Oh, <laughs> you can always have fun like that, even with just a naming language. Yeah, I like that. that's that's a that's a great suggestion, actually. Um, I know I said we should be wrapping up, but I I want to like talk about that because one of the biggest things that like DMs want to have is like a list of names for mm -hmm. NPCs. Just to you can whip up a la naming language pretty easily and oh, yeah. generate some some names. And have that as your list. And like now they're all like within the culture and all, you know, consistent in terms of phonology and everything. And you you're like, and that's added a lot more to your world than like the default lists of names in the book, which are kind of like all over the place and weird. Well, yeah, <laughs> and you'll run out. This way you can just generate more. Mm. Yeah. And if you don't feel like doing it, you could go to the LCS's jobs board. Ah, there you go. <laughs> plug, plug. <laughs> tell, tell, tell Wizards of the Coast to do that. <laughs> I, yeah. I think David and I have both tweeted them, telling them that a few times now. Yeah. 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 But you know what we should do, though, for all the... Uh... For all the new dot-comers, no, I'm sorry, not dot-comers anymore, that was the 90s. For all the tech people in San Jose and San Francisco who are now running D&D &D games on their own because it's hip, hey, it's only, it'll only cost you a few thousand dollars to hire a conlinger to create some languages for your campaign. Why not? <laughs> I mean, a lot cheaper than That's... that for just naming languages, but... <laughs> Oh, come on. This is this. We're talking to San Francisco, San Jose here. This is tip okay. money for them. All right. Perfect. <laughs> I could use the tip money. Well, that's 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 a great idea. <laughs> no, but but seriously, like the audience for this show is not the it is not those <laughs> rich non happy versions. <laughs> but for no, the audience for this show, yeah, you could definitely through. Um, roll, make up some some naming languages, at least for for a list of names, and then you can you can make those naming languages like related in interesting ways still without having to build out full con languages. 
and such. So yeah, even, even that will get you good world building. And if you want to go further and invest the time and build full conlangs for your D&D worlds, that's great. And you basically are doing the same conlanging that you would do for anything else. Just it's for a game instead of for a novel. So <laughs> we want to encourage people to, to, to try this out. Do it to the level that you are willing to invest in your, your games and such. And yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great, I think that's a great takeaway. So before we overstay our welcome too much, uh, David, thanks for being on. Mm-hmm. And Joey, thank you for, for sharing your experience. He <laughs> And which is tiefling for hell yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, that's that was the other one you had is tiefling with lots of um lots of insults and and prof- <laughs> and profane words. Uh but anyway, so the rest of you all, thanks for listening and happy Colleen. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Conlangery is supported by our patrons over at Patreon. A special thank you to Ezekiel Fordsmender, Graham Hill, and Margaret Ranstall-Green, as well as all of our other patrons for their support. Conlangery is under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, attribution, share-alike license. You may use Conlangery in any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided and you use the same license on that work. Conlangery's website was designed by Bianca Richards and our theme music is by Null Device.